Chuck Swindoll and all of us at Insight for Living, Happy New Year. I'm Dave Spiker. We're pleased you chose to set aside a half hour on this holiday to study God's Word with us. Today, we're resuming a topical series we put on pause just before Christmas. It's called Questions Christians Ask. Sometimes our ambition to accomplish and succeed gets snuffed out by our own insecurities. Well, we're turning to the book of Acts today, where we discover God's intent to use you for His glory in powerful ways. Chuck titled today's message, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution? church is a family. It's a blended family. That's by God's design. That's how we learn to grow in grace with one another. You see, when you're a close-knit church family, you don't hire everything done. People pitch in. A slick corporate philosophy and a selfish consumer mentality really rip off the body of Christ. That keeps us from the privilege of serving Him. God's blended family should say instead, you know, we have a need, so let's all pitch in and meet that need. That's what the first century church did. Now, I love that. You don't have to hear about them or see them. Now, why would I say that? Because they're servants, and that means they're content to work behind the scenes. They're part of a group in the Bible I call the willing unknowns. They're ordinary people making significant contributions who find delight in serving Jesus Christ without fanfare or any applause. They're faithful folks who never demand public recognition or anticipate tangible rewards. Such individuals are rare. We usually applaud the upfront and well-known servants of God, but remember this. Those ordinary people far outnumber the folks who are up front, whom others think of as celebrities and sometimes superstar Christians. In fact, I'm convinced God gets more done through ordinary people than through anybody else. We're going to hear today how ordinary people in the early days of the church buried the dead, preached the gospel, made disciples of gifted individuals, and helped a few people survive. I'd like to read a passage that tells their story of how the church first got underway after Christ had ascended into heaven. It's found in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Again, it's Acts 8, verses 1 through 13. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church, He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria 
and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. listening to Insight for Living. For resources pertaining to our series, Questions Christians Ask, go to insightworld.org. And now the message from Chuck Swindoll. Can ordinary people make a contribution? One of the major enemies of missions is a false propaganda. This propaganda comes hard and fast into our ears, and before we can be implanted with the truth, it seems as though this propaganda has already found lodging in our heads. It carries a line with it something like this. Missions is for superstars. A missionary is a spiritual giant. I mean, after all, listen to the names. The Apostle Paul, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, George Mueller, C.T. Studd, Jim Elliott, Cam Townsend, and a whole list of other statesmen we could name. And have you noticed how early on this propaganda comes into our ears? I sometimes wonder if there isn't a sinister force that invades a church nursery and somehow gets down near the ears of the little baby and says, Psst, hey kid, wake up. Missions is for superstars, and you don't qualify. Now go back to sleep. And does that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday until finally about the time that kid reaches adolescence, he's begun to believe the line from that sinister force. And when some youth worker or some preacher or some pastor or some evangelist or some mother or dad begins to talk about missions in the life of that youngster, he's already programmed. She's already heard another message. And the message is, unless you are one of the greats, meaning highly skilled, articulate, academically in the top 5% of your class, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, faster than a speeding bullet, you're not qualified to go to the mission field. 
I thought about how strange these secular heroes are. Superman, Batman, Plastic Man, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman. Why, what do we expect when it comes to carrying God's message across the seas? Anything less than that? Well, how about ordinary man? Just doesn't seem to fit in that category, does it? And do you know what? As a result of this false propaganda which has been effectively communicated into the heads of the young and old alike, we slug it out year after year to get a corporal's guard to believe they're qualified to go to the field. I mean, just to get their attention and to have them tolerate the thought, maybe, just maybe, I could be one of those people. It's easy for us to f forget that those great statesmen, men and women alike, had to put their pants on one leg at a time. They've got to struggle just like you and I do with doubt and temptation and greed and self-pity. They too lack time in the Word of God. They too struggle with prayerlessness. They too, they too, they too are selfish. They too want to be first. They too are human, just ordinary people. But you see, we don't really believe that. Honestly, we don't. We doubt, for example, the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at that passage, will you, for just a moment? 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 26. We really don't believe what we're about to read. Oh, we say we do, theoretically, but, but we think it's for the first century, or it's for the Corinthian church. It's not really for us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Consider your call, brethren. Let's look at you in the assembly. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and base things of the world. Are you putting together your list? All right, let's put foolish, weak, base, and add despised. God has chosen. Things that are not and I take that to mean hardly worth mentioning, to put to shame, to put to death, to nullify the things that are. Why? That no one, no one should boast before God. We want to believe that. We really do want to say that's, that's our conviction, but we don't believe that. I came across a rather humorous but somewhat true list of what it means to be a good pastor. Must have the strength of an ox, the tenacity of a bulldog, the daring of a lion, the wisdom of an owl, the harmlessness of a dove, the industry of a beaver, the gentleness of a sheep, the vision of an eagle, the hide of a rhinoceros. I'll agree with that one for sure. The perspective of a giraffe, the disposition of an angel, the endurance of a camel, the bounce of a kangaroo. The stomach of a horse, the loyalty of an apostle, the faithfulness of a prophet, the tenderness of a shepherd, the fervency of an evangelist, the devotion of a mother, and then he wouldn't please everybody. And that's what we expect of our missionaries. I mean, it's almost walk on water or you can't fill out the form. 
But this passage says, he has purposely chosen ordinary, basic humanity to cause the world to gasp and say, oh, I can't believe it. Well, you know, we are so enamored of the physical that we really have bought that lie. And therefore, we discount that message coming to our ears saying, you know, you're, you're a potential candidate. You know, you ought to think about rearranging your career plans. You know, God has a place to use you in his service. You're qualified. You can do it. Let me show you another passage we don't really believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about this great ministry that we've received in verse 1. He's telling us that it's like a treasure that has been hidden, and yet it is able to wipe blind eyes clear of the blindness and lift the veil of the mind and give life. And Paul says, I come not adulterating the word, but I commend it to you. And then he says in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Honestly now, you believe that? The surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of the vessel. Well, surely that's what he means because he begins by saying we have the treasure of the gospel in earthen Vessels. I once heard that paraphrased. We have the treasure of the gospel in a peanut butter jar, in a jug, in a clay pot. Meaning what? Meaning human flesh. God has been pleased to place the treasure of the gospel inside a clay pot called human being. The amazing thing of the gospel is that God has limited it to the proclamation of the human throat. The same throat that utters profanity. The same throat that belches out doubt and unbelief. The same throat that stands silent when it should speak and speaks when it ought to be quiet. The human throat. Your throat and mine. We have this treasure in a clay pot. I like Ray Stedman's words. We're all cut from the same mold. Some are just moldier than others. <laughs> we are. Warren Wearsby has done a great service for the family of God. He's written several books, such a prolific writer. One that I like very much is called Walking with the Giants. And it's a, it's a compilation of over 20 great spokesmen for Christ who lived in years past. The thing I love about it is... He shows us the earthen vessel part of their lives. He doesn't keep that from us. I made a list of some of the things these great people had as part of their lives. A perfectionism and a demanding nature. Another caustic and easily angered. Another given to depression and overshadowed by dark fears of failure. One was in ill health and did his best work out of his bed. Several obscure throughout their life, and they weren't really made known until they died. Then they became famous. Another was quite wealthy, 
all through his ministry, always traveled first class, always wore the finest garments. None of the standard mold you would pour these men into. In fact, I talked to Wearsby one day about one of the men that happened to be a friend of his during uh, the time the man was alive. And he said, I'll tell you, Chuck, the guy, <laughs> nobody could get along with him. And today he is a saint. These books that now bear his name, I mean, you just think he was something on a stick. Will we forever cancel out the message from the nursery? Are you willing to put to death the traditional line, the propaganda, the ad, the hype that says unless you are in that top 5%, you don't even qualify to think about missions or ministry of any kind? You want to know what it takes to be uh, an earthen vessel? Look at verses 8 and 9. It'll tell you. And I think there's not a person here that would have difficulty identifying with these. Affliction in every way. Not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I like the paraphrase. I think it's J.B. Phillips. Knocked down, but not knocked out. You've been knocked down? Isn't a person hearing me at this moment that hasn't been knocked down? Emotionally beaten by the savages. The brutal times in which we live. Ever had times of affliction? Who hasn't? That's when we've grown. That's when we've done our best to learn that he was acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. Well, it qualifies you to be a, to be a possessor of the treasure. You want to minister? Minister with your, with your scars, your cracks, your brokenness, your humanity. Those are the people that get into the crevices of others' lives, not the, not the plastered saints. <laughs> I love the story that comes out of England when they were running out of silver and had none left for their coins. The crusty old Oliver Cromwell sent his men to the cathedral to see if they could find any silver there. They came back. The only silver we can find is in the statues of the saints standing in the corners, to which he replied, Good! We'll melt down the saints and put them in circulation. That's where saints belong. In circulation. We don't belong stuck in the corner of some church, gathering dust, getting our halo shine, set a, sitting up on a pedestal as though we're some big deal. Who are we going to reach inside this building? God designed us to be melted and pushed into circulation. And we resist that even with the lie that says, oh, I'm not qualified, I'm not good enough, I'm not big enough. I want to show you that what it takes is really to be little enough, honest enough, available enough. Let me point out a few saints that were pushed into circulation. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts, it's a good place to start. How long overdue this, this message is. I want to give you something that's very helpful for me to remember when I study my Bible, and maybe you'd like to put it in the margin or in the front piece of your own Bible. I would put it in these words. The obvious is not usually the most significant. The obvious is not usually the most significant. 
People who read their Bibles and sort of graze through it hurriedly only catch the obvious. And there are great treasures that need to be mined from the crevices and pulled from that which we would call insignificant or obscure. I want to do that today. And when you turn to the book of Acts chapter 8, what you would think of is the obvious, the greater light named Stephen, who has been stoned in an awful experience for people to witness. The first martyr. Standing nearby is a man named Saul of Tarsus who holds the garments for those that stone him. And uh, if you're not careful, chapter 8 will only turn on the pivot of Saul who's persecuting the church, another great light. That's obvious. But the obvious isn't the most significant. The most significant is the saints that are in circulation. I want to show you in this passage and this chapter and the one that follows four or five unlikely things that ordinary people do in the work of missions. Let me read the first verse. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And now watch carefully. I have this underlined in my Bible. They were all scattered. Who is the all? Well, it would modify the people of the church in Jerusalem. Those folks that made up the saints in Jerusalem. Suddenly they're melted and pushed into circulation. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Don't stop reading. This is important. Except the professionals. Except the apostles. Let's use the word professional and layman just for the sake of understanding, okay? Our clergy and laity. God designed through the process of persecution to push ordinary people into the known world of that day to spread the gospel. He kept the professionals at headquarters, Jerusalem. But he pushed into Judea and up into Samaria and regions beyond the lay people. See the way it reads? They stayed in Jerusalem, that is, the apostles. But what about the ordinary folks, those that weren't in the category of the greater lights? What did they do? Well, let me show you first. The first unlikely thing they did, they buried the dead. So oozing out of the, f the fabric of the church came a few devout people who took care of the burial. We tend to think of these New Testament saints as overqualified and unapproachable. But in so many ways, these biblical characters are just like you and me. You're listening to Insight for Living and a message from Chuck Swindoll titled, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution? Now, this sermon represents the seventh in a 12-part series called Questions Christians Ask. To download the MP3 files or to purchase the CDs, you can find all the details at insightworld.org. Many folks are surprised to learn about the free outlines— if you'd like to follow along with Chuck's message every day and jot down your own notes, be sure to take advantage of the daily message mates. Just go to insight.org messagemates. 
Midnight on December 31st represents a significant turning point for Insight for Living. Last night, a number of loyal friends went online or gave us a call to give their generous end-of-the-year donation before the deadline. And while it's too late to qualify for a tax deduction in 2013 today, it's certainly not too late to make an impact with your donation. We're saying thank you for your gift today by providing an exclusive book called The Way of Lament. To explain further, here's Chuck. Consoling those who grieve is not the exclusive assignment of the clergy. Yes, as a pastor, I've spent all too many hours standing at a gravesite beside grief-stricken husbands and wives, even moms and dads, as they unleash their loss and cry out to God for mercy. But all of us, no matter our profession, need to prepare for those inevitable moments of compassion and empathy. For that reason, I'm heartily endorsing a brand new resource from Pastor Terry Boyle, who serves Insight for Living in the United Kingdom. He's written a new book called The Way of Lament, a biblical approach to God in times of pain. In the pages of his book, Terry points us to the biblical model for taking our anguish to the throne of God, just like the psalmist did. Whether you're dealing with a personal loss or you're coming along someone who needs your wise, biblical counsel and compassion, you'll appreciate owning this book, The Way of Lament, A Biblical Approach to God in Times of Pain. Even though it's New Year's Day, dedicated folks are standing by to receive your call. And here's the number. If you're listening in the United States, call 1-800-772-8888. You can also make your request online at insight.org. The title of the new book, The Way of Lament, A Biblical Approach to God in Times of Pain. If you're listening in the United States, call 1-800-772-8888. And while you have a little extra leisure time today, we encourage you to check out the upcoming Tour to Israel this March with Chuck and Cynthia Swindoll. Space is very limited. You'll find all the details at insight.org slash events. I'm Dave Spiker, inviting you to join us again tomorrow to hear another message from Chuck Swindoll. That's Thursday, right here on Insight for Living. The preceding message, Can Ordinary People Make a Contribution?, was copyrighted in 1983, and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2013 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide.